our Bibles now, if you would please, and open them to uh, Philippians chapter 4. Uh, let me say first this evening that you'll notice that you don't have very much on your listening sheet tonight to fill out. And that's because most of the uh, sermon that I want to preach tonight is introduction to this text. And so uh, I've actually got a four-part sermon on this one verse. And I, because of Christmas, I won't be able to finish it up until probably about the first week in January. But in the past few messages, we, we've been discussing Paul's description of God's providential care for his children. And in these last few verses of chapter 4, we have a lesson uh, in contentment from someone that we would think could not possibly be content. If contentment is dependent upon and peace is dependent upon uh, joy uh, of the material things that we gather in this life, then yes, we would say that Paul should not be writing this way. There's no way that he can talk about contentment as he does in this fourth chapter. Uh, basically, Paul had nothing material. Uh, he never built a fine house. He never accumulated any retirement funds. He didn't have a house full of servants. He didn't have a fine chariot to ride in from place to place. Uh, basically, he was very materially poor. And not only was he divested of his material gains, but also he suffered mistreatment from friends and foes alike. So we think, how could a person like this, in, in such condition, write honestly about being content? Well, the key to it all is the standard by which he lived. The world standards were totally uh, unimportant to him. Uh, the standard that he lived by was a spiritual standard in which all peace, joy, and contentment is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. He said in the very first chapter, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And that is a verse that sets the tone for the rest of what we read in Philippians because that reveals the standard by which he lived and where he found his contentment. And in the fourth chapter here, as he concludes, he's giving another lesson on contentment. And with thankfulness, he writes to this uh, Philippian church about their gifts for his ministry. Now, verses 10 through 19 in the fourth chapter are a thanksgiving statement. And then Paul comes down to verse number 20, and he breaks out in a concluding doxology. Now, I want you to read that with me tonight. Let's just stand up and read this together. Uh, all of us reading together Philippians 4, verse number 20. Now unto God and our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. I don't think I got too much audience participation there. Would you read that with me? Now unto God and our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word and thank you for your people who've come out tonight to hear the message. Encourage us in this, Lord. Help us to learn. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Now unto God and our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. What a great doxology that is. Now, maybe you're not familiar with the term doxology, but what that means is simply a hymn of praise. And as you read these last few verses of Philippians, you can sort of feel things kind of picking up, and you can feel, I think, Paul's heart beating faster and faster until he can just no longer contain himself, until he breaks out in this hymn of praise, and he says, To God be the glory. Now, that's not uncharacteristic of Paul. Uh, there are such moments in his writings uh, throughout the New Testament where he does just gush out with praises to God. 
One of the most memorable times that we have in Scripture where Paul does this is in Romans chapter 11. And there he's just written those tremendous chapters of 8 through 11 where he talks about God's masterful plan from the foundation of the world, about how God has chosen his people and promises to bring them to glory. He's talked about how we can't be separated from the love of God. He talked about just the, uh, the way that God uh, works in our lives and has chosen us for his salvation. And he is so full of that doctrine that finally he comes down in Romans chapter 11 and he says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, or who hath been his counselor, or who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. Then likewise, in chapter 16 of Romans, he just made some remarks about the sustaining power of God in salvation. And then he concludes with this, To God only wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. And so it's not uncommon for Paul to be overwhelmed when thinking of God's mercy, his love, and his grace, thinking simply of the majestic majestic, uh, part of God and, and, and his wisdom, his majestic wisdom, that he just can't help but just break out into this song and give God all the glory. Have you ever felt that? I mean, have you ever felt a time when the Word of God has touched you and and you felt God's Spirit working within you convincingly, and you just have to stop for a moment. You have to gather yourself, and you have to smite yourself on the breast, and you just have to give God the glory. And you may not do it the same way that Paul did it. You may not say the same words that Paul said, but you feel that, and you have that strong emotion down in your soul. And I think as Baptists that we have become gun-shy of such things because we've seen what the charismatics do and false outpourings of the spirit that they display. And we don't want to be characterized by their activities. And so we kind of hush ourselves up. We stifle our praise and we just don't give glory to God. Now, I don't advocate, of course, that we start jumping over the seats in here tonight and and speaking a lot of gibberish and those kinds of things. But I do believe that we have stifled the Spirit so that in very rare instances do we ever give a verbalization to that joy that's in our heart where we give praise to God. Now, you're not going to see me run across the platform and do backflips and those kinds of things, dancing on the stage. I don't do that. But you might see me in a time when I just have my head bowed and for a moment I have to gather myself or I have to stop speaking. And it's in those moments that that's what I'm doing, that I'm giving God my doxology. I mean, I'm just lost in this wonder and amazement that God would do such things for an unworthy sinner such as I am. And I think that's what you see in these moments where... Paul gives deep praise. I can't imagine what it must have been like to have the Holy Spirit move upon you in such a way that you could write down the very words of God. Sometimes I listen to sermons as they're being preached, and I listen to songs that, that people sing here, and even sometimes in a congregational song. I can become just overwhelmed with the message of that song. And I know that a sermon that I hear or a song that someone sings, that hasn't been inspired by the Spirit in the same way that Paul is inspired. And yet those kinds of things can move us to these types of feelings. Now, can you imagine what it must have been like for uh, the writers of the New Testament and 
Here, of course, we're speaking of, of Paul in particular, that, that he would have this vast array of knowledge that was bestowed upon him, and he would feel God's Spirit within him as he begins to write down the very words of God as God spoke to him. Now, though there's much in the Bible that we don't understand, we, we just diligently study things to try to get the depth of the meaning of Scripture, and sometimes when we're finished with the study, we don't even know if we've got the right interpretation. But what would it be like if God were to speak to you about the deep things like he did to Paul and were able to write them down and to understand in their purity the depth of the meanings of the words that God has given you, the pureness of it. How much more, if you had that, would you break down into wave after wave of praise to God for that, for that knowledge that he's given you down in your soul? And when you think of it like that, what material things could ever match what God did in the soul of the Apostle Paul as he wrote the words of Scripture. I mean, how would you ever think that any material thing that you would gain could possibly stand up that you have been to that, that you've been so blessed to be God's instrument to write his Scripture? And so is it any wonder that Paul would find contentment in his calling? Prison, what is that? Trials that he goes through, what is that? Perils in the, in, in the sea, he said, what is that? What, what, is, it, what is it to be uh, accosted by robbers? What is it to be forsaken by the world? What is all of that? Well, it's really nothing when you're so close to God that the God of this universe, you can feel him beating within your breast. You can feel his heart in yours. And so it's no wonder that Paul was so full of praise. And yet this very same God... It's very near to every one of us. Now, maybe we don't write Scripture, and perhaps we're frail, and perhaps we can't be used in the, exactly the same way that Paul was used. But if you know Christ, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit dwells within you nonetheless. And perhaps we don't even really grasp the, the depth of the meaning when Paul wrote down Scripture, such as 1 Corinthians 6.19, when he said, What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God, and you're not your own? Paul is simply telling us there that when you realize who God is and you surrender your life wholly to him and know that he lives in you, then you feel him in that way. You can't help but just break out into a doxology. So contentment will be yours, as it was with the Apostle Paul, when you feel God beating in your breast. I mean, he so far transcends all, uh, transcends all earthly treasures that you really don't feel deprived when you don't have those things. You don't really even miss those things when you have this kind of contentment. And that's because you find all of your satisfaction and all contentment in Christ. And that's why he said, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I live, it's Christ. If I die, I go to Christ. Christ is all in all. And so there's nothing that matters but him. And so those kinds of thoughts are the, are the ingredients. That's the motivation for doxologies. And that's what Paul does after his, his contemplating how that God was so gracious to him, how, how God had, had taken care of him in prison and in fastings and perils and all the personal rejection that he experienced. The only thought that ever controlled him was what he wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 1. And he said, I thank God, or I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer, a persecutor, and injurious. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly, exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus." 
This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Howbeit for this cause I obtained mercy that because in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all long suffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. Now unto God eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Now you notice verse number 17? What is it? It's another doxology. And it comes at the completion of what Paul, uh, of his contemplation about personal salvation. And he says, Now unto the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And you listen to those adjectives. The King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God. And he says comes back with just superlative on top of superlative. And that's what happens when God's Holy Spirit begins to fill you up so that you just can't take it anymore. You have to let it out. And that's what Paul does. He bursts forth into praise. To God be the glory, he says. With his blood, he has saved me. With his power, he has raised me. To God be the glory for the things he has done. Now, Paul was a Baptist, but he didn't care too much about stifling praise. Well, all of that is introduction to the introduction. I really haven't even gotten to the the subject that I want to talk to you about tonight. All of those things figure into this. But I want to narrow things down just a bit to this expression that we find in uh, verse number 20. Now, unto God and our Father be glory forever and ever. And unto God our Father. That's what I want to talk to you about. And my subject is glory to the Father. And I want to discuss with you why we give glory to the Father. Now, I started putting together a list of reasons that, uh, why we should glorify God. And uh, I came up with ten reasons. And there are many, many more reasons that I could have come up with. But uh, the, these ten reasons are the ones I'm going to talk about in these next few messages. Uh, so I'm not going to get through them all tonight. And then I know I can't get through them all, especially when I'm going to do something I think I don't, don't realize or, or, or don't remember uh, doing before. And that's to give you an introduction and then come back with another introduction or a second part to an introduction before we actually get into this. So what I have here is, I don't know, back back when I first became pastor of the church, we were studying the book of Jude. And I told you then, I said, well, we're going to preach a, a Jude in such a way that it's going to be a freight train sermon. And that is, uh, there are many, many parts to it. And we'll stop when it was time to stop, and we'll unhook. And then we'll come back the next time, and we'll just hook up again and take off from where we left off and, and just continue the journey. So that's what we're going to do as we think about these ten reasons. So let me give you just a, a little bit more of introduction into what we want to talk about. Here, uh, Paul gave glory to the Father. And I want to say that he didn't speak of the Father to the exclusion of the Son or of the Holy Spirit. Because he might well have said glory to the Son. He may have said glory to the Holy Spirit. But there is a specific purpose why he does say here glory to the Father. In Jude, verse number 25, Jude said, To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. And that's a doxology that's given by uh, the Apostle Jude. But here, or in that verse, Jude is speaking of Christ. And he doesn't say glory to the God of our Savior to the exclusion of the Father. 
And we notice that these kinds of expressions are are showing us that there is equality in the Godhead, that we're speaking here of the doctrine of the Trinity and that God is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. In Hebrews chapter 1, the Scripture says, God, who at sundry times and in divers' manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the world who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Now there we have a passage that deals with the equality between the Father and the Son. And it also teaches here that the Father is a person. Just as Christ is a person, Christ is a person, and it says that he is the express image of God the Father's person. So what that means is that Christ and the Heavenly Father are one in essence, and they are one in nature. And just as Christ is a person, so the Father is a person. They're not three separate gods, but they're the same in essence and in nature. And I've stated this because we need to be very clear about it, that there is a difference between the Father and the Son, and a difference between those two and the Holy Spirit. And in the Godhead, they perform different functions. They have different things that they do. They're not three gods. They're one God manifested in three persons. Now, having said that, Paul speaks here specifically about God the Father in Philippians 4.20, and he ascribes glory to him. And this is particularly important as he does so because calling God our Father is something that is peculiar to the gospel dispensation. Now, we we, uh, are going to get into this a little bit more in our study of Matthew because there, when we get into the model prayer that Jesus gave, he taught his disciples to begin their prayers, Our Father, who art in heaven. And that was foreign to those Jewish people to speak about God in that way. And that's because this is peculiar to the gospel dispensation. And God is our Father based only upon the relationship that we have with Jesus Christ. We become sons of the Father because we are in Christ, who is the eternal Son of God. Now, Paul spoke about God the Father in a different way in Acts chapter 17 when he was speaking to the Athenians on Mars Hill. And there he told the Athenians, he said that we're all the offspring of God. And he meant that if we're God's offspring, then, of course, God must be our Father. But you remember when Jesus was speaking to the Jews about their unbelief, he told them that Satan was their father. And they didn't believe, he said, because you you haven't been chosen. You're not of my sheep. Now, Satan couldn't be their father and God be their father at the same time. And so it's evident that God the Father is God of the redeemed or the father of the redeemed in a much different way than he is the father of those who are simply his offspring by creation. Now, it is the gospel of Christ that allows us to call upon God our Father because he is our Father based upon the merits of Christ. And so when Paul says here, glory to the Father in Philippians 4.20, he's expressing that special relationship that we have with God based upon the work of Jesus Christ in salvation. And he speaks this way because the whole of creation and the fact that Christ is our Redeemer and the Holy Spirit is the agent in our regeneration all comes because of the original plan and purpose of God the Father. And so Paul gives then this expression of phrase, 
uh, a praise rather directed directly or directed to the Father because of this wonderful, masterful plan that he had. And this is what Paul finds pleasure of contentment in. The Father is the one who is the fountain of all of our benefits. It's God's plan and purpose to do what he does. The whole of the Godhead is concerned with what God the Father does, but God the Father is the particular person of the Godhead that formulated the work of creation and of redemption. Now, that doesn't make him superior to the Son, nor superior to the Holy Spirit. That's impossible in a trinity where all three persons are one in, the, uh, one in nature and one in essence. And so there can't be any such thing as one part of the Godhead being more powerful or more deserving of love and adoration than are the others because all three are one God. And so we don't speak of Jesus being greater than the Father and we don't speak of the Father being greater than the Holy Spirit or the Holy Spirit greater than the other two. And we'll talk about the different aspects of this and how all three persons of the Godhead work together as we go along and look at reasons why we glorify God. But I also want to state that what I have to say about the reasons that we glorify him is not merely an academic exercise. Now, we look at verse number 19. If you go back up there, Paul said, But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. And I pointed out last week the significance of Paul saying, my God. Now, we don't talk about these things as if God is impersonal to us. And we give glory to God because he is so personal that we can call him our Father. In Galatians 4, 6, we read, And because ye are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Abba is a word that's somewhat hard to translate, but it basically comes down to a form of endearment. It's like a child calls his father Papa or calls him Daddy. And in Galatians 4, 6, Paul uses that word to show that God has not conquered us like slaves or like an enemy and, and then uh, as buying a slave out of the marketplace that we mean no more to him than simply a servant. Now, it's certainly true that God did buy us out of the marketplace or the slave market of sin And that's one of the meanings, actual meanings of redemption, is to buy out of the slave market. But when God has done that, he takes us to himself, and he is so intimate with us that he adopts us into his family as sons. A slave would never call his master Abba. Now, he may call him father, but he won't call him Abba. Uh, And so, here we are, we're the bondservants of Christ, but at the same time, we do have the right to approach God the Father as Abba, meaning that we have that intimate relationship with him. So again, we're not, we're not talking about an academic exercise, and we don't talk about these things as if God transcends all personal relationships. We speak of him with terms of endearment, just like a, a young child speaks to his father with pride and with adoration. I remember when I was growing up that, and maybe many of you feel the same way, that I was growing up and there was nobody like my dad. I wanted to be like my dad. And I, and I saw him and the way that um, he studied the Word of God and the way that he took care of the family. And as I was growing up, that's what I always wanted to be. I want to be just like dad. And I wondered, how could I ever measure up to someone like that? I mean, such selflessness that he had, just the willingness that he had to, and the love that he had for his family. How, how could I ever measure up to that? 
And when I became older, my love for my dad never diminished. And as as an adult, I, I tried that much harder to be like him. And that is exactly the feeling that Paul has when he says, My God. There was reverence for God to be sure and he would never come out, uh, come into the presence of God in a flippant manner without all due respect to God. But at the same time, he knew he had that relationship. There was the closeness to his heavenly Father that he could reach up at any time. And just like a child grabs the finger of his dad and he feels that protection and he feels that comfort and he feels that assurance and confidence of having dad around, that's the same way that Paul felt about his heavenly father. Now, those kinds of thoughts cause you to give doxologies. When you have that kind of joy in your heart to know that you have a personal relationship with the almighty God of this universe, that he cares for you specifically, that's the stuff that doxologies are made of. Well, we're getting close here on time, a little bit more time left, and I haven't gotten to the first point. Uh, that's part two of the two-part introduction. So we're going to look at only one reason tonight why we glorify the Father. My first reason that I thought of, I guess goes back to the very beginning, and that's why I would think of it, and that is the creation of the Father. Now, obviously, I don't mean that the Father is created uh, because he's eternal God. Those of you that uh, take the Table Talk magazine, you're aware that in the November issue they had quite a bit of information there about Uh, creation versus evolution, several articles that were there, and particularly relating to Charles Darwin. And I'm not going to go into all of that, except to say that there is a huge problem that evolutionists have and, and atheists have as well, and that's trying to figure out what is it that started it all. I mean, if we could ever admit to evolution in some kind of attempt to deprive God of the the glory he should receive because he created the world, we would still be faced with this question, where did the first thing of any kind ever come from? Where did it come from? Something cannot arise out of nothing. Something had to always be there to have something, didn't it? And if you ever, or doesn't, and if you you ever get that into your mind that... uh, It has to work this way. Something has to be there. If you get that undeniable fact in your mind, you can just settle back then, and then you can stop kicking against the pricks, and you can just go along with God's creation and believe it. I mean, the eternal God has always been there, and he's well capable of self-revelation. If he's God, and since he is God, he has no cause to lie to us. He can't be God and lie. He has no cause to lie. And so the only logical conclusion you come to is just simply believe the Bible. But my purpose tonight is not to convince atheists and agnostics and evolutionists that there is a God and that they ought to glorify him. Uh, They never will glorify him unless God opens up their heart and illumines it to the gospel so that they can believe. They're not going to glorify God. But it doesn't mean that they're never going to glorify God because, friends, they will. And right here in the book of Philippians, Paul says they will glorify God. If we look in Philippians 2, verse 9, it says, Wherefore God uh, also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we notice there he says things under the earth. That's a reference to the powers of darkness and reference to those that are in hell. And what does it say that they will do? They will confess the lordship of Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. So I don't need to convince them to glorify God. 
God's going to do all the convincing. They don't need my powers of persuasion. But you as Christians, uh, those of us here in the room tonight, we are the ones who ought to glorify God out of a heart of true conviction. And we ought to glorify God for His creation. Now, there are many reasons why to do that, but primarily the creation of man made it possible for you to be a partaker of the glories of Christ. You know, never think for a moment that the creation of man was a necessity for God. Never think for a moment that you were necessary to add to God's enjoyment so that God could not be complete without you. Now, I'm reminded of what Brother Richard Bennett had to say when he was here. Uh, He preached on Sunday night about the adulation of man in the purpose-driven life. And he quoted from Rick Warren some things from his book. And Rick Warren says this in his multi-million copies sold book. He says, if you want to know how much you matter to God, look at Christ with his arms outstretched on the cross, saying, I love you this much. I'd rather die than live without you. You remember what Brother Bennett said? Let Let me just... Read the quote from him. He said, These words, I'd rather die than live without you, are part of a lyric of the Backstreet Boys. These words, put into the mouth of the Lord Jesus by Warren, are utter blasphemy. Christ Jesus, the God-man, does not have a love that is dependent upon man. If he had such a dependency, he would not be God. To teach such a deficient love of the Lord Jesus Christ as Warren has is both an insult and irreverence. It exalts sinful man to a position of controlling and fulfilling the imagined needs of the eternal Son of God. Such an imagination is profanity, the same as that recorded in Scripture. He opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name. In Scripture, Christ's love and sacrifice were to demonstrate that God is, in the words of Scripture, just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Nevertheless, Warren's teaching attempts to make the adulation of man the centerpiece of God's purpose. That's a great statement from the top to the bottom. If you believe that God created us so that Jesus could have a few friends to hang around with and he could not live without us, you are just totally mixed up. I mean, what does that do? That glorifies man, not God. It makes man necessary to complete God. God can't be happy without us. And that actually makes us greater than God. So you're starting off on the wrong foot when you say, Unto God our Father be glory forever and ever because he created this wonderful person called me. Or Mark Smith. You may glorify God for Mark Smith, but you can't do it for you. You can't do it for you. If there's any glory to be found at all, it's because God in his mercy, his love, his grace, his compassion elevates the creature to sit in heavenly places with Christ. So how can you do no other than to glorify God when you see what you were, when you see how vile and wicked that you are, and that Christ not only couldn't live without you, but Christ is repulsed by you. I mean, that's the way we are in our natural state. I mean, God is completely repulsed by by humans because we we dishonor God. We've sinned against him. We're repulsive to him. But something changed. Because the only way that God could ever accept us, the only way that he could get over the contempt that he has for us, is based upon the merits of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. And so when we put our faith in him, God looks at us and he no longer sees us. He sees the Lord Jesus Christ. 
He sees the righteousness of Christ upon us. And that's the reason that God accepts us. You know, another thing about that, too, is we're foolish to think that God didn't have enough foresight to know that we would be hidden in Christ. I mean, he sees us as hidden in Christ. He had the foresight to know that. He foresaw all of our sin. He foresaw the the fall of man. But he also foresaw that freedom that we have in the Savior. And he designed it that way. This is God's design on things. And we're going to... Believe me, I'm going to get to that, too, as another reason to glorify him. And um, I don't know if it comes to the next message. I believe it might be in the next one. But he created you for the purpose of glorifying him. You are created to be in the image of Christ. And he will exalt you above all other beings. Now, you know, he created angels and he never provided for uh, the angels any kind of redemption for the ones that fell. And if you may, you may remember that I said that this whole thing is the very reason, I think, that pushed Lucifer over the edge. And it, and it stirred up such pride in him that he finally rebelled against God. And that was he could not stand for any creature that God created to be elevated above him. And yet God said that angels would be ministering spirits. In Hebrews 1.14 it says, he was, uh, They're sent forth to minister to them that will be the heirs of salvation. And Lucifer could not stand that man should be elevated above him. And yet that's what God did for man. Uh, the heirs of salvation have angels at their disposal. And the Bible says that they will rule and reign with Christ. Now you think about that scripture over in Revelation chapter 4. John peers into heaven, and there he sees the very throne room of God. And seated around the throne of God, there are 24 uh, elders, and those elders are representative of every person who has put his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice what he says about them. This is in Revelation 4, verse 4. And round about the throne were four and twenty seats, and upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. Now, these 24 elders are in the very throne room of God, and it says they have crowns on their head. Now, that signifies that they're ruling with God. When you see the word seats there in that scripture, it means the very same thing as thrones. And so these 24 elders are exalted to sit at the throne of God in a place of ruling. Now, that's where they start out. But we notice what happens in verse number 10 of that same chapter. It says, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Now, do you see what happens here? They're wearing their crowns and they cast them down before God because God alone is the one who deserves to rule. All honor and glory belongs to him. Now, you notice the last part of verse number 11. It says, For thy pleasure they are and were created. Now, far from the idea that we're created because Christ could not live without us, here it says that we are created for God's pleasure. Now, that kind of takes the winds out of the sails. I I don't want to convey to you the wrong picture here. Uh, because we have been elevated to a place of sons, and we do have a unique relationship with God the Father because of Christ. But created for his pleasure, doesn't that kind of sound like playthings? Created for his pleasure, that kind of sucks the wind out of you, doesn't it? 
I can imagine this prideful Rick Warren standing in the presence of God thinking that he has established his worth because God just couldn't live without him. And God says, you're a plaything, fella. Just a plaything. I created you for my pleasure. Well, we aren't playthings. We are sons of God. That's, that's true. And we get the picture here that all glory goes to the Father because he created us and then he gave us this unique position that's different from any of the other of God's creatures. That's a reason to glorify God. Now, what we're going to do, we're going to unhook right here, stop the freight train and unhook hook, hook the cars. Next week, we're going to come back, hook back up again, and we'll carry on and get a few more reasons why we ought to glorify God. But we started off with that grand doxology that Paul spoke, and it's... It ought to be spoken, and we ought to speak it. We ought to sing words of praise. We ought to glorify the Heavenly Father every day of this week because surely he does deserve it. So let's go out this week and maybe not be so stifling with our praise and the joy in our heart, but just say a few praise gods and thank him for what he's done for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that we're able to be here tonight and look into your word, and truly you do deserve all of the glory. Lord, we just pray that as Jesus began that model prayer in in Matthew chapter 6, hallowed be thy name. That's giving praise to you. Uh, Your name is great. It's above all others. And we want to simply praise you for your mercy, your love, your grace, and saving unworthy sinners such as we are. Lord, we thank you for this time we spent together. Bless our people, and we just pray you'd bring us into your house again on this coming Sunday morning. Bless us as we sing and All praise belongs to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.